out of 40. This is the last chapter in the book of Exodus, and as it turns out, this is going to be our last Sunday opening to the book of Exodus, at least for now. Maybe we'll have to revisit it somewhere down the road, but for now, this is our last time turning to the book of Exodus to study the word together. It's been just slightly over a year and a half. We started Exodus, for those who are interested. We started August 8th of 2016, and now it's end of March 2018. So it's been a good run. I can tell you that I I have really enjoyed it, and I say that really sincerely, not just because I'm the one who decided to get get into this long book, but it's been very good. Uh, uh, even, even the second half of Exodus, which is admittedly uh, a little bit less exciting, has fewer stories, uh, it has been very rich and has showed us a lot about the character of God, a lot about the grace of God that is shown to us in Christ. There are so many different ways that Exodus points us to Christ. Not only through the obvious ways, such as the Passover, where the people are Literally, they're redeemed out of slavery by the blood of a lamb. But it shows us Moses in his role as mediator. He's both the redeemer and the lawgiver. He's the one who leads them uh, as prophet uh, and king in this building of the tabernacle project that they're doing. There's this imagery of, of Moses being sheltered in the rock while the glory of God goes by. There's the entire law of God and the covenant that he makes with his people. Uh, There's all the ways that he provides for them while they're wandering in the wilderness. There's the tabernacle itself with all the rich imagery of the the different elements and the furniture. There's so many different ways that Exodus is a book that teaches us not merely the history of God's people, but shows us all these pictures pointing us to the work of Christ and our salvation. Uh, We are the same people. This This is our story in Exodus. And now we get to the final chapter, Exodus chapter 40, and the final closing Note, this chapter tells us uh, sort of the final steps of the tabernacle being put together and built and then leaves us with just this glorious picture of the glory of God descending and filling the completed tabernacle. It's really a great passage. So let me ask you, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's holy word today? This is Exodus chapter 40. We're going to read the whole chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, And set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. And consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. 
You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting, opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the word of God given to the people of God. And we pray now that you, by the power of the Spirit of God, would apply it to our hearts. Open our eyes that we may read with delight and with understanding and with conviction and with faith and with trust in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that he will be exalted from the words of this passage today. And Lord, may we see truly the glory of the Lord, not in the physical tabernacle, but come to us in in the person of our Savior, Christ. And Lord, may we delight to walk with him and to be with him throughout all of our journeys. Lord, we ask that you would uh, use the word today for the shaping and the forming and the discipling of us, your people. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. If you remember, one of the things that we've been saying throughout our study of the book of Exodus all of this time is this. God is not just freeing a people. He's forming a people. That's sort of become a little motto for this study, that God is not just freeing a people. 
He's forming a people. I think this is one of the major themes of the book of Exodus, that all the way back in chapter 1, they started, the people were slaves in the land of Egypt and a foreign land, and God sets them free miraculously through the blood of the Passover lamb, sacrificed in the feast of the Passover. That's one of the major highlights of the book of Exodus. It's perhaps the major highlight, the Passover, when God frees his people out of their slavery and brings them to himself. It's such an awesome display of God's power with this whole night of the, the death of the firstborn, which is the tenth plague that God brings against their enemies. And through it, the enemies are judged and his people are set free. This perfect picture of the salvation that is ours through the blood of Christ. However, in the book of Exodus, that's not the end of the story. That's certainly one of the highlights, but that's only chapter 12. There's 28 more chapters to go. God has set them free out of their slavery, but God's not just freeing a people. He's forming a people. And so after now he redeems them and sets them free, now he's going to bring them to himself at Mount Sinai. He's going to bring them into his presence where he's going to reveal the law, the Ten Commandments, as well as the rest of the law. And they will receive all of the instructions for the building of the tabernacle, which they then carry out. And there's these 28 chapters now where God is working actively to form the character of his people, to say, you will be a people who who live in obedience, who live lives of worship in the presence of God. You see, he set them free that they will no longer be serving Pharaoh and building cities for Pharaoh. But now they are going to learn what it means to, to serve the Lord and to build for the Lord. They have been set free, but that is only the beginning. The goal of their freedom is not simply freedom itself. The goal of freedom is that they might learn what it looks like to be a free people who obey and serve the Lord. I think we could say it this way, that in Exodus, that the opposite of slavery is not just freedom. The opposite of slavery is freedom in order to worship and obey. In other words, God's not just freeing a people, he's forming a people. Why do we focused on this so much? I think it's because it shows us so clearly something about our lives as Christians as well. That we are saved from our sins by believing in Jesus. We're saved from death, hell, sin, and the devil, judgment and wrath and condemnation. We're set free from all of those things. But being saved is not merely about being set free in order to live however we then desire and to do whatever we want. God has saved us in order that we might now learn how to live for his glory. God saves us from our slavery to sin in order that we might now know what it is to live for God, to live lives of obedience and worship. Prior to salvation, we too were slaves, slaves to sin. We were building our own kingdoms, living for our own purposes. And God has rescued us from that life of futility and misery and set us free in order that now, by his word and by his spirit, he is transforming us into the image of Christ, as the people who are following Christ, learning what it is to be a disciple of Christ, learning what it is to obey, learning how to live a life of worship. You see, the goal of salvation is not just getting saved, but it's getting saved and now living with God, living in communion with Christ, 
living a life as his disciple. God gives us this new life in order that we might now live new life for God. So even in our lives, we can say God's not just freeing us. He's forming us. He's teaching us. He's discipling us. He's shaping us. We get to this last chapter of Exodus, and we see this final image that the book leaves us with, that God's glory comes down. His glory comes down and it fills the tabernacle and it's overwhelming. It's literally overwhelming. Moses, it says, cannot even enter into the tabernacle because God's glory has filled it in such an overwhelming way. And there's something that, that to my mind, is so satisfying about this final scene that, that just brings the book of Exodus to exactly where it's supposed to be. Because that's been the goal all along. That's been the goal from the beginning since God came to rescue his people who were being held as slaves. And the goal was to to purchase their freedom, bring them to himself in order that he might dwell with them, in order that, that he could be their God and that they would be his people. There's this sense of covenantal love that is finally being, you know, instituted here that this is what God has been working towards, the whole book of Exodus. Not just freedom that they can go in the wilderness, but this, that God dwells with his people, that he's with them, that they're with him. And it's not just God dwelling with his people in some kind of technical, theological reality, but, but it's this actual personal sense that God dwells in their midst. They are in his presence. They know what it is to worship and to obey, to bring the sacrifice of praise to the tabernacle. That's been the goal all along. And this last picture shows us good news that God accomplishes his purposes. And if we had this in mind from the beginning, I think there would have been many times throughout the story of the book of Exodus that we would have sincerely wondered whether we were ever going to get to chapter 40. Right? Israel lived in a foreign land. They were surrounded by people who did not share their beliefs, who did not see the world the way that they saw the world. They did not worship the same God, and those other people were in control. And yet they were set free. But then when they were set free, the very first thing that happened is the enemy came and pursued them anyway. And Israel was certain they were going to die. Die in the wilderness that Moses had just brought them out there to kill them. Except the Lord was faithful again. And he rescued them. And then there they were in the desert with no water and no food. And they were certain that they were going to die. And once again, God was faithful. And he rescued his people. And then there they were, safe at the mountain of God. But they got bored. And they lost their zeal for the things of God. And they pursued other gods. And they deserved to die. But once again, God was faithful and he was merciful and he was gracious to his people. And he forgave them. And he renewed his covenant with them. And now the fact that we have gotten to chapter 40, all of these obstacles have been overcome not by the faithfulness of the people, not by the goodness or the strength of the people. Everything has been overcome because God is faithful to his purposes, because God has a plan for where he's taking his people, and nothing is going to stop him from getting to that end point. God accomplishes his purpose. I think the very fact that the tabernacle is standing at the end of Exodus, it's no testament to the tenacity of the people. It's simply a, a testament to the fact that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new 
every morning. And because of that, we can have confidence that God will, in fact, accomplish his purpose. And so we get to chapter 40, and and what can we say but all glory be to God. All glory be to God because he has accomplished that which he set out to do. He has brought his people to himself, and he now dwells in their midst. He has taken this bunch of slaves and completely reshaped their lives together. He's given them now his word filled with his purposes and his law. He's revealed himself to them. He's reshaped their entire schedule, their entire calendar. Right? Everything that shapes their lives together as a community, he has reformed in order that they might be the people of God. That they are no longer the people they once were when they lived in Egypt, when they were surrounded by Egyptian customs. Now, he has reshaped all of that so that they give glory and honor to God. And he's come to have his glory come down and to dwell with the people in the tabernacle. Now, here's three things we're going to say about it. God dwells with his people. The people dwell with God. And God leads his people. First, God dwells with his people. This is the whole point of this tabernacle project. Right? If we recall, the, the purpose from the very beginning has not been simply to make a, a ritual house where sacrifices would be brought and wrote be offered to the Lord, the purpose has been that God may be with his people all the way back in Exodus 25. When God first introduces the sanctuary, uh, the contributions, the tabernacle, all of the directions, chapter 25, verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That's God's goal, is to dwell with his people, and the way he gets there is going to be through the tabernacle. That's God's way of coming close to his people, of dwelling in their midst, of identifying himself with them, identifying himself with their circumstances, joining them, even in the midst of their life in the wilderness, that God comes close. God's a God who dwells in, with, and amidst his people. And what I want you to ask as we look at this last chapter in the book of Exodus is, do you believe in a God who is like this? A God who comes close to his people, who wants to dwell in the midst of his people. See, God is not a God who is far off. God's not aloof. He's not up in heaven, uninterested in the daily circumstances of his people here on earth. Because I think that would be the God that many people in our day would say they probably do believe in. Right? They might have some, they might, they might say, sure, they believe in God, but he's, he's not here. He's far off. He's in heaven. And say, what does God care about what I do in the privacy of my own home? Right? Because we believe in a God who's far away, who has no interest in the little daily decisions that we make. We think these things, God's not really bothered by these. God certainly has better things to do. What are we saying except we believe in a God who's far away, who does not dwell with his people? I think the truth is probably even many Christians would have to admit that there's sort of this implicit belief That God is not really interested in our lives and and we see that in how infrequently we pray. Maybe the unspoken assumption really is that that God's just not interested in the small details of daily life, that he leaves these things to us and we have to figure them out on our own. Perhaps it's shown just in the implicit uh, general lack of enthusiasm for the things of the Lord because we believe that God is far away. We believe that God doesn't have much to do with daily life. So 
So why get excited about him? Do we believe in a God who says, I will cause all my glory to come down and to dwell in the midst of the people, to live in a tent in the desert? Why? Because I delight to be with my people. Because that's where God wants to be. That's the fulfillment of covenant promises, that he would be our God and we would be his people. I mean, we just think for a moment, if we survey the God that we meet in Exodus, what a picture we get in the book of Exodus. Of, we see the holiness of God. It's one of the first things we see in chapter 3 when Moses comes near to the burning bush and God says, take off your shoes. The place where you are standing is holy ground. And now in the tabernacle, again, we see the, the priests, they minister barefoot because again, this is holy ground where the Lord dwells in the midst of the people. We see the power of God, the plagues against Egypt. We remember that, that the people could not come and touch the mountain. They were just overwhelmed by the thunder and the lightning and the earthquake that God is the God of heaven and earth. We remember the Red Sea that God flexes his right arm to demonstrate his power on behalf of his people, that God does what God wants to do. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. We see that throughout the book of Exodus. We see how he remembers his covenant. The word he'd spoken to Abraham, that his descendants would be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years, but they would come out with great possessions. That's God's sovereignty, that that this is the fulfillment of, of that in Genesis 400 years prior. We see his sovereignty in the plagues that that God draws a line and says they will afflict the Egyptians and they will not touch my people. That God is sovereign over the way that he exercises his power. We see his justice. When we study these chapters and chapters in the middle of Exodus of the, the law of God seeing justice and mercy married together perfectly in the law that he gives his people. We see his character as merciful and gracious slow to anger against us. He's slow to anger when we sin against him and and we have all of this from the book of Exodus, this entire panorama of the character of God and now in the last scene, the glory of all of that comes down and it fills the tabernacle and says this God in all of his perfections, in all of his beauty, is not far off. He delights to be with his people. That's where he wants to dwell. Not in the royal palaces and the halls of power on earthly kings, but but here in the wilderness, in a tent. A tent, goat's hair, and fabric. He delights to dwell with his people. I think we could almost be bold enough to put it this way, that God demonstrates his love for his people in this. While they were yet sinners, wandering in the wilderness, God chose to come and to dwell in their midst. Just like Romans will say when it explains it even more clearly, saying God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, leaving all of the glory of heaven and willingly and humbly setting that aside in order that he might take on what? The form of a servant, being made in human likeness. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Because there's nowhere that God would rather choose to be than dwelling with the people that he has chosen. We see this picture here in the end of Exodus that 
that we see the extent that God goes to to humble himself and to come down and, and to dwell with his people. Humbly in this, this tent in the wilderness because of how much he is committed to his people. Do you believe in a God who dwells with you even in the wilderness of life? A God whose desire it is to be your God. Is your God aloof, unconcerned, far off? Or is it the God who loves his people, who dwells with them, who wants to be near to them? We've got this one little verse here. It's verse 33, the very end of the description. We've had this long description of of setting up all the different elements, and we see them. Did you hear the repeated refrain, just as the Lord commanded Moses? He's doing it just as the Lord commanded in obedience to God's word. And it gets to the end, and it has this line, the end of verse 33. So Moses finished the work. Doesn't that take us back to Genesis? When it says God had spoken creation into existence and God finished his work. And now again it says Moses sets up the tabernacle and Moses finished his work. We talked earlier back in when we were talking about some of the tabernacle furniture that this is really a picture of God's new creation. That just as in the garden originally God dwelled with his people and he walked with Adam in the cool of the day and they enjoyed fellowship together. And because of sin, that fellowship was broken and Adam was expelled from the garden. And now we get all of these pictures throughout scripture of God starting again with a new creation. And the tabernacle is one of these pictures of a new creation that God says, yes, now you are sinful people and by right have no privilege, no access to my presence. But God says to them, we're going to have this tabernacle. And again, I will dwell with you and we will fellowship in the cool of the day. You will have access to communion with your God. It won't be just like the garden. It's not that unmediated communion because now sin is in the picture. But but now there's these sacrifices that God puts in place for their good to give them access to communion with God because God delights to dwell with his people. Now, the flip side is God dwells with his people. The people dwell in the presence of God. I guess that is obvious. If God dwells with his people, then the people obviously are dwelling with God too. But look at it from this angle. Look at it from this angle because here's the people. They're about to leave Mount Sinai. They've been there for about a year now. Uh, We get this note, right? Verse 1 tells us, the first day of the first month. So we've cycled throughout the whole year, right? The first day of the year was the day of the Passover. That's when their calendar began. God said, that shall be the first day of the first month for you. And now we've cycled around, so it's been exactly one year since the people left Egypt. And now they're about to leave Mount Sinai. They're going to wander through the wilderness. They don't know at this point how long that's going to take. But still, it's a scary proposition to head across the wilderness. Best case scenario, there's a long ways to go before they get to the promised land. And they need to know throughout that journey that they are following the Lord, that he is with them and they are with him. Because they could wake up every day of that journey and they could look around them and they could say one of two things. Either they could look around and say, we are really in the middle of nowhere. I do not know where we are, what is going on, why are we still in the desert, and get discouraged. Or they could say, they could look around and seeing the tabernacle could say, I am exactly where I need to be. 
I live in the presence of my God, and he lives with me. And do you see, what they see when they look around their lives makes all the difference to their perspective on life. Either you look around and you say, I have no idea what is going on in life right now. This is not where I want to be. What am I doing here? Or you look around and you say, God is with me. It doesn't matter the circumstances of life. It doesn't matter that I'm spending 40 years wandering through a barren wilderness because the Lord wanders with me and he is leading the way. Does that change the way that we would take an outlook on life, the way that that our heart would feel? It's interesting if you look look forward. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is going to take this very reality and apply it to the lives of the people in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 3. If you remember, we talked about this last week, that one of the ways that the New Testament applies the reality of the tabernacle is by saying that we, the church, are God's temple or tabernacle. We are the temple. Right? And he's not talking about our buildings that we build, that we meet in. He's talking about us, the people of God, the body of Christ, the church, that's us. And he says, we, whether we're inside a building or outside, we are the people of God, and we are the new temple. Right? And he says, Jesus is the cornerstone of that temple. The apostles and prophets are the foundation of it. And we all, like living stones, are being built together into the temple of our God. Now, In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is using that same metaphor. And he's using that same metaphor to teach them about some of the the petty little problems that will just naturally arise in a community of of people, of sinful human beings all together, even in the church, that these things will arise. And, And the problem they're dealing with in particular is division. That the people are divided. That they they refuse to get along, to to be one body, they are uh, they are disagreeing with one another. And Paul says, look at what he says starting in verse 5. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. He brings us up again. You are the building that God is building, the temple, the tabernacle that is one. Now, he goes on in verses 10 through 15 to continue teaching and and with a little bit of rebuke for these divisions that they have. And he gets to verse 16, and here's the the point. Here's the, the final punch, right? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And he's teaching the people and, and he's sort of, he's, he's kind of on their case for these sins, these divisions, all these petty disagreements within the body of Christ that crop up and, and we know those things are going to happen. But Paul is telling them, and here's the knockout punch, don't you know who you are? This is not just some random human collection, some common interest society that we get together once a week because we all agree about certain things. He says, don't you know, you are God's temple. And where do we leave the temple, the tabernacle? Same thing in Exodus 40. God's glory, all of God's glory, the majestic, divine God of Exodus has filled it with such power that the people can't stand to to go in. Moses has to stay outside and now he says to the people, that's you. 
and God's Spirit dwells in you. Right? And those, those yous there, it's plural. He's talking to the whole body. Y'all are God's temple. And God's Spirit dwells among you. This is a potent bit of medicine that Paul gives to the church to rebuke these, these petty little disagreements. To this church that has lost zeal for God, is slipping into worldliness and letting these worldly issues slip in and begin to undo the work, Paul says, remember who you are and remember, in particular, who dwells with you. Who dwells with you? He says, does it change the way you look at life when we remember that that we are the temple of God and therefore God in all of his glory dwells with us? That there is one present in our worship service who goes unseen but is yet the most important person This very spirit of the living God dwells in our midst. And he says, God's temple is holy. He has such a vivid picture of that spiritual reality in Exodus 40 when the glory of God comes down and enters into the tabernacle. How easy it is for all of us, I believe, to to do the same thing that the Corinth church did. Slip into these worldly ways of thinking. To let these little petty issues crop up, begin to divide, begin to distract us, and to forget the spiritual reality that, 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 that you, us, New Life Burbank, we are the temple of the living God. God's Spirit dwells with us. I believe if, if the Lord were to simply open our eyes to that spiritual reality, that it would change things. Just if we were more consciously, more aware of, of the holiness of God dwelling among us, that there would see, be some changes we would see in our lives. Perhaps changes in our church. Changes for the better. Because Paul looks at this episode in Exodus 40 and what he sees is not just a, a distant past reality. He sees a picture of the church. And he says to them, Do you not know you are God's temple? Same reality. God dwells in the midst of his people. The people dwell in the midst of God. And finally, What we see in this last paragraph is that God is leading his people. God is leading his people. We see it in verse 36, this final description. And we're aware of this part of the story from the the whole books of the Old Testament. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. So there's this This element here that that God continues to lead his people now across the wilderness. We know it goes on for 40 years simply by the cloud of his glory that has entered into the tabernacle. And I have to admit, I'm a little jealous of that. How nice that must be to have this actual visible representation that you can see of God's guidance, of his leading, of his direction in your life. But still, they're, they're living by faith. Right? We, can, we can possibly put too much weight on that and say, well, easy peasy, all they had to do was follow a cloud. They're still living by faith, aren't they? They may be waiting for the cloud to lead the way, but they still have to believe. They still have to obey. They don't always know why the cloud does what it does. And that's the hardest part, isn't it? It's one thing to say, I will obey, Lord, where you lead, I will follow. But aren't we constantly racked by, by why, God? Why? Lord, why, why am I going through this season of life? Lord, why did we take a, a right-hand turn back at that last cactus? 
I would have gone the, the shortcut. And we don't know why God leads us the direction he does. I can imagine there were many days they woke up and they looked at the tabernacle and they thought, let's see that cloud go somewhere. And it didn't rise up from off the tabernacle. And I imagine there were plenty of days that those Israelites begged the Lord, please let us move on to a different place. This place is no good. I don't like it. And they were called upon to live by faith, to live by obedience, to, to obey that command that if the, if the cloud does not move, we do not move. Have you ever been in that place of simply begging the Lord to do something, to lead somewhere, to change some circumstance, and the cloud didn't move? Here's the, the summary of the Christian life in Exodus is we see this picture of this people who have been chosen and loved and redeemed by God, made into his people, given his law. And now they spend the rest of their lives learning what it is to worship and learning how to follow, trusting God for his guidance, not knowing where he's going to go the next day, not knowing why he's leading the way he is leading, but learning to follow and trust and obey. And the, the picture that Exodus leaves us with is, is just the glory and the beauty of that. The glory and the beauty of this majestic cloud of God's presence coming into the tabernacle and God, as it were, saying, now I'm home because I'm with my people. Now I'm home because I'm with my people and we are going to go across the wilderness and, and you will not know where we go every day, but we're home because God is with us. When we began the story, they were slaves. Now they're free people living with God, living in the very presence of, of this glorious cloud. Living with him means learning how to trust him. It means learning how to obey. It means learning how to worship. We know there were stumbles along the way in the wilderness. That's why we have the next few books of the Bible. But that's life. Learning how to live with the Lord, learning how to trust Him, obey Him, learning to worship Him. That's our story too, isn't it? It's no wonder that, that so many authors over the years have seen the wilderness wanderings as a, a picture of the Christian life. That God redeems us in Exodus 12, but the people don't get to the promised land until the beginning of Joshua. And all that time in between is just life. It's following the Lord. It's learning how to trust and obey learning what it is to worship, failing and experiencing the grace of God over and over again. That's our story too. Because God is not just freeing a people. He's forming a people. God's not just freeing us as though there were nothing more to the Christian life than, than being converted at one point, knowing you're free and nothing else. The Christian life is, is a life of living with God, learning to obey, learning to worship, learning to trust. We are the people that God is, has freed, is freeing, is forming, and will continue to form. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks today for the gracious gift of your word. Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you demonstrate your great love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That he came and he lived with us. He humbled himself. He left the, the glory of heaven 
to be born in humble circumstances because of his love, because it's a demonstration that this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, Father, we pray. By the power of your spirit, Lord, don't let your word go in one ear and out the other, but apply it to our hearts. Lord, press your word onto us, and we ask that it may bear fruit 30, 60, even 100 times that which is sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.